Hey, it's great to see you. Welcome back. We're thrilled to be starting the fall season together. And if you are a newcomer in this circle here online or in the building uh, and we haven't met, I'm Dan, one of the pastors, and I'm really excited to be in conversation with you today. You know, every now and then I have these experiences where I go, you know, there really is a divine orchestrator of this life. Now, it's not that I don't hold that as a conviction uh, week in and week out. Every now and then I get, get, I get these little reminders of, of the way things line up that I couldn't have made happen myself. And I have a friend who calls these God winks. This is God just going, I got this. So last week, you know, what were we talking about here? This, some of you I know were away for the holiday, but we talked about the virtue of work by exploring the story of the life of Noah. And I commended him for building an ark. Who would know we would need to be building arks this week, given the weather patterns that have suddenly come upon us? And then we selected, as you may know, for this fall series, uh, a focus on the book of Kings. Who could believe that we would see a coronation this week, that we would see the passing of one of the great monarchs of our history? And I, just, I think these are just little indications, reminders to us. There is a Lord who is moving, who is in some um, mysterious way orchestrating things. And if you're in a place in your life right now where, it, where you're, you're being flooded, where you're seeing the changing of things, in, the changing of the guard, so to speak, in your life, and you're wondering, gosh, is this going to turn out okay? I just want to encourage you to wait a little longer and, and look for God and look what God might yet do in the circumstances that seem challenging right now. Well, before I jump into the conversation for this morning, I want to just invite you to bow your head one last time, and then I'm going to open up God's word with you. Lord, thank you for um, bringing us to this place today. Uh, thank you for putting us in these seats. Uh, thank you that you have given us in the Old New Testaments of the Bible storylines that intersect so profoundly with our lives and the issues and struggles and questions of today. So we just ask that you would um, speak to us through your word this morning and that uh, something that is said here in this place would find its way into our heart and bear good fruit in the days to come. Uh, so we offer ourselves to you as listeners and as, as preachers uh, for your good purpose. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. He had quite a background. He, um, he was the son of an extremely wealthy family. They ran a major, major business. It literally was a billion-dollar business. And not surprisingly, as the son of this kind of, a, of, a, of an empire, he decided he should study up on business. So he got a degree in business administration from a prestigious university. He had all kinds of natural leadership gifts. He was uh, a motivator of other people. He seemed to create connections when he rallied people. But it was not until he met his partner, found a, a, a strategic partner, that his influence in life really took off. The partner was an interesting figure as well. He was a mechanical engineer. He had done his education work at uh, university in North Carolina. He was an immensely creative thinker, and he had this idea about repurposing a common mode of transportation that could be history-changing. 
And, and the son of the construction uh, empire, this wealthy young man, liked the idea a whole lot. He, he liked it particularly uh, so much that he decided to really invest in this person. He discovered this person was a very spiritual person like himself. So he ponied up funding and he ponied up personnel for the project. And the engineer brought in the operational know-how for the endeavor, including a strategy for putting some of their staff into the cockpits of some commercial airliners. And on September the 11th, 2001... Those partners, Osama bin Laden and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, changed history in a ruinous way. Osama and Mohammed, Hitler and Goebbels, Bonnie and Clyde, Harley Quinn and the Joker, from the realms of fantasy and imagination to the hardcore news that alters the pages of history, it seems that there are certain people who have the capacity when they team up as a power pair to do a kind of level of damage that's almost unimaginable. They can become a veritable house of dragons when they get together and nowhere is that more evident than in the Old Testament stories we're going to explore together this fall in the book of Kings. So I want to invite you to just listen with me as I read today uh, one of those stories, one of those narratives that comes to us from the first book of Kings, chapter the 16 at the verse, the verses 29, if you'd like to follow along. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of of Omri became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Now there's a lot in that sentence and I, I just want to parse it for us. I want to pause here at the start and observe that I suppose at face value what we read here doesn't seem to be all that interesting. It doesn't seem to be, seem to be very big news. So let me just provide some background. Think of it as sort of like catching up on past episodes of Game of Thrones so that you can appreciate the prequel or so that you can go on with the series. You need to understand that in the ninth century before Christ, the land of Palestine in the Middle East along the Mediterranean Sea was partitioned into two separate but related states. It used to be the United States of King David this place. It used to be a very considerable empire for its size in those days. It used to be a unified country with a, a shared set of religious precepts and cultural values that had expanded influence in the ancient world. But by the time we get to 1 Kings chapter 16, things have changed. There's been a succession of kings over a period of time, kings and queens, with the result that now the Jewish people are divided and undergoing significant decline. This brings up, I think, one of the most important lessons from the book of Kings, and that is simply the idea 
that leadership really matters. This is a big idea in the Bible, too. Leadership really matters. I know that there are a lot of people this week that have been mourning the uh, death of Queen Elizabeth II. I have cousins who live, have lived in London for 50 years, and, you know, just thinking about a, a, a Britain without Queen Elizabeth seems very difficult for them. And they're hoping that King Charles rises to this moment in history in a way that helps to stabilize the country. A nation can have a very good constitution. It can have all kinds of fantastic natural resources. It can have uh, phenomenal past history. But if it does not have good leaders in the present, it can lead to all kinds of troubles. That's true not just on the national level, it can be true at the very personal level. A, a, a household or a church or a business can have nice statements on their wall of their values. They can have fine facilities. They can have all kinds of wonderful aspirations. But if it doesn't have good leadership, woe to that entity, that family, that business, that organization, that church. This is why we have to all care a lot about who sits on the throne. We have to spend a lot of time and energy thinking about the quality of the people that are on the throne. And when it comes our time to take those places of leadership, we have to think deeply about what it is we're doing, who we are as we assume those responsibilities. Now, when I say good leaders, what do I really mean by that? Well, I want to suggest that good leaders are people who are morally excellent and practically effective, and that it takes both of those things. Again, there's lots of reason to think that that's what made Queen Elizabeth II so popular. You know, she was largely morally excellent. She was a, a person of, 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 of general integrity and consistency. Uh, and she was practically effective. She knew when to speak and when to act and what to coach and, and when not to. We need both of these qualities in our leaders today. It's not enough if a leader is effective in getting stuff done, but is not morally sound. That is going to lead to major mistrust and division and, and a decline in the standards of virtue in general and specifically in the spheres that they most influence. Conversely, it's not enough if a leader is simply a pretty nice person, but their practices or policies are not effective in addressing the real needs of people and the problems of the time and the opportunities of that age. You need both, because if you have just um, kind of kindness and a basic decent character and not the ability to make things happen, that also leads to another kind of distrust and decay. In every single zone of life, leadership, good leadership, by this definition I'm suggesting, deeply matters. Does that make sense to you as you look around in the world today? Well, when we open the book of Kings in chapter 16, we've dropped into a time where the effects of poor leadership have really taken their toll. Uh, the formerly united Jewish nation is now arranged sort of like the north and the south of the U.S. probably would be today had there not been an Abraham Lincoln to, to assume the throne in, in, the, in the American sense of that. 
The land mass that we're talking about here in 1 Kings is a lot smaller than the U.S., so maybe think of it as sort of like North Dakota and South Dakota, but with nicer winters and better hummus. That's, that's what Palestine was like. The northern part of the country is called the Northern Kingdom. It's referred to as Israel, and its capital was a city called Samaria, which in the New Testament uh, brings us Samaritans that we read about. The southern kingdom was called Judah, and its capital was the city of Jerusalem, which I know all of us have heard about. At this particular moment in history, the southern kingdom is going through a bit of a resurgence. And that always gives me hope. I realize, you know, they had some bad days, but then they rose again. And that gives me hope for lots of spheres of my life when I'm having bad days, that there is this Grace that is greater than the gravity of life is one of the elements of the Christian message, and that's, that resurgence can happen. Well, a king named Asa has now been on the throne of the southern kingdom of Judah for about 38 years, and he turns out to have been a pretty good leader by the definition I gave you earlier. The Bible tells us that Asa had led a campaign against the, a lot of the pagan superstitions and the destructive practices that had become commonplace during the previous two administrations. He reduced crime. He established a, a better level of public safety. We know that from ancient documents. Asa's reign was marked by military peace for 38, actually 41 years, and also led to a revival in the spiritual life of the nation. He was, a, he was a good king in that way. He, he was able to bring about a lot of positive changes. Life in the northern kingdom, well, actually, let me back up and just say, that name Asa, that, that name used to be a name that parents would name their kids Asa, their sons often Asa, because of the good reputation. The Puritans loved that name Asa at the start of the U.S. And so if you're looking for a name for the next baby, think about Asa. It's a possibility. Life in the northern kingdom uh, was not going so well. Um, there were challenges there. The people in that part of Palestine endured a succession of harsh, selfish, incompetent kings whose reigns ended in assassinations and coups and self-destruction in some cases. And for the 12 years leading up to 1 Kings chapter 16, Israel uh, in the north had a king named Omri. Omri. Kind of sounds like ornery which means bad-tempered and combative, and that would actually describe something of Omri's character. Omri was, in some ways, enormously effective. He was a strong military leader. He was, in reality, though, morally corrupt, and he was very cruel, and his faithfulness to God was mainly in words and not in deeds. And so when Omri finally decided to retire and to turn the throne over to his uh, son... In 874 B.C., you can imagine what some people were feeling. I mean, I can just hear them talking when, they, when, the, when the press release, the news starts circulating. Hey, Omri's uh, laying down the crown. You can just imagine people saying, oh, thank goodness we're done with that administration. I mean, this next one just has to be better. And the real optimists are saying, I think this new guy, I think the son of Omri is going to take us in some great new directions. Why do I think that they reacted that way? Because it feels like human nature is pretty consistent stuff and it feels like this is what we often do at the changing of the guard in, in administrations, in business, in politics, in other ways. 
But listen to what the Bible goes on to actually tell us happened. Ahab, son of Omri, the successor, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. That is a pretty ringing condemnation. That is a pretty unambivalent uh, condemnation. We thought your dad was bad, you're worse. You've done more evil than anyone who has come before you. You are the worst of the worst. Not a good annual review. Not good polling results. But this verse that I've just read is really not about public opinion. Go back with me and just really study what verse 30 says. It doesn't say that Ahab was a bad king in the eyes of the citizens of Israel. His programs and personality might actually have been quite popular with a number of people. We know from the writings of the Assyrian Empire, the Assyrians were like the biggest secular power of this age, and, and their histories you know, pretty much were the, the believed histories of that era. And they regarded Omri and the house of Omri, the, the family of Omri, as, as, as reasonably effective and positive leaders. But that's not the lens that's getting used here to assess Ahab. It says that Ahab did more evil than any before him in the eyes of who? Who? Yeah. In the eyes of the Lord. I said earlier that the first lesson that we draw from the book of Kings is that leadership matters. And that leadership in the fullest sense embraces both moral excellence and practical effectiveness. I want to underline here a second important lesson from the book of Kings. And this is a theme that runs throughout the scriptures. In the assessment of a life... It is God's view that counts most. When we're trying to assess a life, it's the view that God has that counts most. And I think that's just something worth going back to, thinking about, because it strikes me that we're living in a period of time where that idea has sort of slipped away for many of us and certainly for our society. We're living in an era... That, that much of the time we're thinking about how we're being viewed by other people, how well we're lining up with the dominant fashions and trends and values of our time. Do I look thin or do I look fat? Do I look like a winner or am I looking like a loser? Do I seem culturally or politically savvy or stupid? Do I have enough likes or followers or loves? Am I popular with people? What do the polls say? Will my leadership legacy be deemed a success or a failure? Maybe like no other people in history, we're just so unbelievably conditioned to assess ourselves against other people and other people's opinions. We spend so much time curating and questioning our image before the people of the world. But what if that's the wrong focus? What if that's actually a really bad focus? 
And what if we're actually wasting precious time and energy pursuing the approval of people who will be corpses or who will be trembling on their faces on the ground when the real judge, when the person who is ultimately going to assess everyone and everything, when the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end of the universe is actually the one rendering an opinion. When I read the teaching of Jesus closely, I, 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 I think that one way of understanding it is that he's preparing us for that ultimate day of accountability. The Bible teaches there's going to come a day when history as we know it comes to an end. We know there's going to come a day when our lives as we've known it will come to an end, but all of history too. And there will then come a day, a day of resurrection in which all of us are before God and he renders his assessment. And even nations will be judged, the scriptures suggest. And I think that Jesus spent a lot of his time when he was walking the earth trying to help us understand what if we leaned into it, what if we cared about it, would lead the one on the throne to say, well done, well done. And it's sort of, it's things like this. He might want to know, what evidence is there that you have loved me above all others. The first call in the scriptures is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength. What evidence is that you've actually done that? How have you lived out my commandment to love your neighbor as yourself? Do you know, to really love the people around you the way you love yourself. Uh, have you used your talents, Jesus teaches in some of his parables, have you used your talents to serve the purposes of God? I think the Lord will want to know that. How have, you, how have you handled my estate and what I've entrusted with you to manage it? In other words, I, I know that you're constantly being called to pursue the values of the empires of this world, but, but what I want to know is how have you sought first the kingdom of God. I just think it's really helpful for all of us, me included, to pause and say, you know, <laughs> what am I chasing? Who am I trying to please? How am I showing what my ultimate values and my sense of assessment uh, really is? Well, in the ninth century BC, um, Ahab, who was the leader of the kingdom of Israel, and a lot of the people that followed after Ahab didn't answer those questions well. They actually failed the assessment of God. And I want to ask, was, ask, what was it specifically that went so wrong? What was it about Ahab that was badly off the mark? And how could that be an instructive lesson for us so that we don't slip into the same patterns today? Well, the book of Kings offers two principal critiques of Ahab's life and leadership. Would you like to know what those are? They're just two quickies. One, he considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Oh, well, that settles it for us. I understand it now. No, we need the backstory. We got to watch the past episodes to know what's going on here. Um, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, was 
a servant of King Solomon, one of the, the better kings that Israel ever had. He worked on his staff. Jeroboam was an intensely talented man who later became one of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. But Jeroboam's besetting sin was that he got comfortable with putting God in second place in his life. He got comfortable. Literally, he considered it trivial to commit a sin of putting God second. God had commanded Israel, thou shalt have no other gods before me. You should put me first. That was the, the main commandment of the Jewish tradition. And, and so Jeroboam, don't get me wrong, he liked God. He did. He liked God. He liked the values of his kingdom. But he really loved wealth, control, popularity even more. He valued idols above God. Idols are anything that takes the first place that God should have. And he, and he valued idols above God. And Ahab apparently was like that. That's the first thing we learn about Ahab. The question is, are we like that? In any way could, could you or, or, or I be thought of as like that? In what ways, like Ahab and Jeroboam, do you and I consider it trivial, as in not a particularly significant matter, that we put idols this world worships first and we give God second place? We comfort ourselves because there's a ton of people don't even put God in second place. God's way down the list or off the list altogether. But sometimes we slip into thinking, well, at least God's on my list and he's pretty high on the list. In what ways do we consider it trivial that we actually don't have him in first place? How do we make our kids' sports and academic records more important than seeing they develop a love of God and a relationship with his forever family, the church? How do we make pleasing our audience on social media uh, more important to us than pleasing God? How many times when we're about to type a response do we think, is this going to honor God? Is this going to represent his values? Or is this just going to bring a laugh or a, or a thumbs up from somebody in, an, in some echo chamber? Why do we make serving our political tribe more significant to us than pursuing the more complex agenda of God's kingdom? Because neither the Democrats nor the Republicans have in their specific agendas the full range of concerns of God's kingdom as we read about in the New Testament. Why have some of us deprioritized public worship so much? One of the apostles says, let us not stop meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. Why have some of us totally lost that? I understand some of us can't be physically present together in church. I am not dissing people that are out there right now cleaning up their flooded basements. Please, if that's what you're doing, I totally get it. There are health conditions, there are travels that mean we just can't be here. But... But the number of Americans that have now sort of left in-person church, you know, this is really remarkable. I met with the senior pastors of all the larger churches of Chicagoland last week, and, you know, most of them are seeing like 40% of their people have just disappeared into the, the ether of, I think a lot of it is online. And it's better than nothing for sure. But, but what does it say about how we've prioritized um, a God and a gospel that was all about gathering people together and connecting them. Uh, again, I'm just asking questions. I, I don't have all the answers to this stuff. 
But why does God not get first place, and where is he not getting first place in our lives? The second big critique of Ahab's life is this. He let Jezebel in. He let Jezebel in to his life and to the life of his nation. The Bible literally says, Ahab also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And now that requires some background too. Jezebel is one of the most notorious figures in the Bible. Um, she shows up not only in the book of Kings, but later on in the book of Revelation. Uh, she's described as sort of the archetype or symbol of all the forces that mislead the followers of Jesus and lure them into practicing evils step by step, little degree by little degree, that end up destroying them, that wreck the potential that they had. If you're a Game of Thrones fan, she's like Melisandre, the Red Witch. You know that character? Someone who seduces people uh, easily. She's beautiful. She's attractive. She draws you in, and then she just ruins everyone who falls in love with her. This is Jezebel. This is what the original Jezebel was apparently like. Jezebel, her name ironically means chaste was not particularly chaste. She was from Sidon, which was a city up the coastline on the Mediterranean uh, in an area called Phoenicia, north of Palestine. And, and the Sidonians had a lot of great qualities to them. They were phenomenal maritime commerce leaders. And they, in many ways in this part of history, they dominated uh, commerce on the Mediterranean. But they worshipped the pagan gods Baal and Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth, sometimes called Astarte. Baal was the god of sun and storms. That's what, he, that's what he was. Ashtaroth was said to be his divine wife, the goddess of sex and war. Sun and storms, sex and war, right? And, and in ancient times, Ashtaroth was often represented as a beautiful woman with horns on her head, like the devil. Close, and that wasn't, and that, that wasn't problematic to people. They didn't see that as a bad sign, the little horns on that. Closely aligned with Baal and Ashtaroth was also Asherah, the goddess of fertility, thought to be Baal's mom, whose altars would get marked by what are called Asherah poles, kind of like big wooden totem poles. If you're going along traveling through the countryside and you saw one of those, you knew, oh, I can go over there. That's, that's where the goddess of fertility is hanging out. I can pray to her. Um, so to appease these gods, the Sidonians, and this is amazing, they were sophisticated people. As I said, they were amazing people of commerce, they were engineers. But to appease these gods of theirs, they practiced ritual sex in their temples, and they sacrificed children by burning them alive. That one of the greatest devotions you could, you could express towards uh, Asheroth or Baal was to, to take your own child in and sacrifice them in this way. That might bring more sun or fewer storms. So here's my question. Can you imagine a culture, a sophisticated culture at that, an educated culture at that, that would worship sex and destroy children in great numbers and become obsessed with seeking sunshine and avoiding all storms? Can you imagine such a backward culture that would do this. 
I'm so glad this is just ancient history and not really relevant. When the Jewish king um, Ahab married Jezebel, do you suppose he imagined that it would lead to his giving up his worship of the Lord? He was a Jewish king. I don't think so. I, I, I don't think he, he saw it going in that way. He, he likely thought, you know, I'll just respect Jez's religion. It might give me a little more favor with our trading neighbors to the north. And I'll bring her over to Yahweh, to Jehovah, to the God of Israel in time. I'm sure she'll be attracted to that. I wonder how that worked out. I don't know if you've heard the, the, of the book, The Screwtape Letters. It's, an, it's a book of a generation ago, but uh, gosh, this is one worth having on your shelf. John Cleese, the Monty Python guy, has an audio version of it that's great. Put, put on your phone, have it in your car. But the premise of The Screwtape Letters is that you, there's this senior devil named Screwtape who is writing to a junior demon named uh, Wormwood, and he's advising Wormwood on how to ruin the life and the spirituality of somebody who's trying to follow Jesus and God. And, uh, and it's this correspondence back and forth about how to go about that process. And there's a lot of brilliant stuff in there, incredibly relevant to us personally. But let me just uh, zero in on one section of the of the screw tape letters, and I'm going to paraphrase here. This is um, screw tape speaking to the junior demon. Just get your patient to start thinking about Christianity and anything else. Just get them to start marrying a devotion to God, to following Christ, and something else, and you've got him or her. Tape says. Get them to start seeing Jesus or Christianity as a constituent element of life. You know, as a sort of a helpful philosophy to be married with other issues and concerns, but don't let them see it as the lens through which all of life and all the other issues of life can actually be seen better. Don't let that happen. Get people thinking, Jesus and. Jesus and my politics. Jesus and all my material things. Jesus and all these other things. Jesus and all the opinion of my friends. Get them thinking of Jesus and, and Christian faith will lose its transforming power. It won't be long before those other things, the stuff at the end of the and, start to move to the center. Here's a question for all of us. What's after the and for us? What are we letting into our life? Where are we indulging in some of the old, I can have Jesus and this not so compatible thing? <laughs> Where are we doing that? This is what Ahab did. And how's the marriage going? How's that working out for us? Ahab let Jezebel and her priorities into his life and to the life of the nation. And the book of Kings tells us what happened. In time, Ahab set up an altar for Baal. 
Ooh. He's not just tolerating that there's a little bail slipping into Israel's life. He's setting up an altar for it. And then it goes on and says, where's the altar? It's in the temple of Baal that he built in the capital city, Samaria. He is now investing massive resources of the people in promoting Baal worship and all that goes with it. And then the text says, Ahab also made an Asherah pole. And he did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Like Obama and Muhammad, Hitler and Goebbels, Bonnie and Clyde, the power pair that would be Ahab and Jezebel would wreak profound spiritual, moral, and practical destruction upon the nation of Israel. When they found each other, those partners, and began to move, man, was trouble to follow. So who could stand up against them? They were charismatic and powerful people. Who could stand up against them? Who in the name of God would stand up against those two? And the answer is one remarkable, courageous figure that we'll meet next week when the story of the book of Kings continues. Would you please pray with me? God, we know that leadership matters that every circle in this world needs leaders who are morally excellent and practically effective. We also know that in the assessment of anybody's life, your view counts the very most. You see, we know you see, the powers, the temptations that right now are trying to seduce us and to steer us and to occupy the throne of our life. So please give us greater clarity about that. Use this series, God, to just sharpen our vision of what's going on in our world, in our lives. Give us courage, God, to not let these things in or to throw them out if they're already in. Give us the commitment to put you first and at the center of our life. For in the name of King Jesus, we pray. Amen.